Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. To make a donation, please use the link to the left of this webpage. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. What watching the clouds can tell us about climate change. Scientists see evidence of a vicious cycle as warming thins the ocean's clouds, letting in more sunlight. It sets off a chain of events that actually feeds back on itself. So warming produces cloud cover change, which produces more warming, which produces more cloud cover change. Now that kind of feedback loop could lead to an even warmer planet. Also, the changing energy future for Indian country. The Cheyenne fought for years to keep their land free from mining, but now they reconsider coal. The revenue that would come from that coal it well address our needs for money for education housing for all our people. And lawn care made easy by giving up on the grass. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth, so stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Ralph Waldo Emerson once compared nature to a mutable cloud, always and never the same. Climate scientists trying to understand how nature is changing with global warming find clouds a crucial and frustrating part of the picture. Could clouds get thicker and perhaps offset warming or shrink and add to the warming cycle? A new study on clouds published in the journal Science clears things up a bit, and the findings have big implications for just how hot the planet might get. Amy Clement is a co-author. She's a professor of meteorology and physical oceanography at the University of Miami. Professor Clement started with decades of data about low-lying clouds over a part of the Pacific. Well, these clouds have a particularly strong effect on the climate system. They're close to the ground, so they don't have much of a greenhouse effect. In other words, they don't trap a lot of the heat that the Earth is radiating to space. But they are very highly reflective, and so as a result, they actually cool the climate. So they're reflecting some sunlight back up towards space, but they're not acting uh, like a blanket like some clouds do. That's exactly right, yes. How do you go about studying clouds? I mean, they're pretty ephemeral things. There are two ways of looking at clouds, from below and from above. Sailors have been making measurements of clouds, looking up at the sky, determining what fraction of the sky is clouded, and writing those down and reporting them back to a centralized archive. And then another way to look at clouds is from satellites. So satellites um, send down information from the atmosphere in the form of numbers, basically. And those numbers are converted into a cloud fraction that can then be compared with what a surface observer sees. Mm -hmm. And so you compared what uh, folks had reported from the decks of ships with what satellites had reported from up above and found they correlated pretty well or what? They, they correlated actually shockingly well. And what we found was that when the surface of the ocean is warm, there is less cloud cover. And we also included in our analysis information about the sunlight that's being reflected. And what we find is that when the cloud cover is reduced, it lets more sunlight into the surface. And that change is actually largely responsible for the surface warming. 
Now, a few scientists uh, theorize that clouds might work the other, the other direction, that it's going to make things cooler. Uh, what does your report say about that? Well, it's always possible that they might be right, but the onus is on them to show that there's any observational support for that happening. Right now, um, the only observational support we have is that as the surface warms, this low cloud cover decreases. And until someone can show the opposite, then we don't really have any reason to reject that hypothesis. So what's going on here with ocean getting warmer, the cloud cover getting thinner, more sunlight getting down to the ocean, it getting even warmer, this kind of a vicious cycle. That's right. It sets off a chain of events that actually feeds back on itself. So warming produces cloud cover change, which produces more warming, which produces more cloud cover change. This does not sound good. It's not. <laughs> you know, there are lots of different processes that operate in the climate system. So this is not the only one. But it does seem to indicate that clouds are an important factor in climate warming. So what does this mean as we project things forward and we anticipate uh, more carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, more warming? What's going to happen? Well, that's the kind of thing that you would want to do with a climate model. So using the observations, we then went and tested climate models to see if any of the 18 models that we used that had participated in the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that came out in 2007, if any of those models reproduced these fluctuations. And of the 18 models, only one was able to reproduce these cloud fluctuations for the past. Really? Yeah. And that one, I don't think it's a fluke that it was that one. This is the Hadley Center model from the U.K. Met Office. They've spent a lot of time and effort trying to provide a better representation of the lower part of the atmosphere where these clouds lie. And what uh, kind of projections does that model generally give us? There's a range of projections of models for the IPCC report, which goes from 1.5 degrees Celsius to 4.5 degrees Celsius for doubling of carbon dioxide, which is supposed to happen towards the end of the 21st century. So that's about 3 degrees to almost 9 degrees Fahrenheit change, a big, wide range. The Hadley Center model um, predicts a warming of 9 degrees Fahrenheit, 4.5 degrees Celsius. They're the ones at the upper end of that range. The largest amount of warming of any of the models. And they're the only ones that got the clouds right. That's right. What does this tell us about uh, what part of that range of predictions from models we should really be looking at? I think we need to accept the possibility that that top end is not a fluke, that there might be real physical processes that can drive the climate system to that high end of the warming range. The climate system, it's sensitive. And if we tweak it, we might be looking at a um, future that's very different from what we've experienced in the rest of human history. Amy Clement is a professor of meteorology and physical oceanography at the University of Miami. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. A pair of scientific ships sets sail this month to explore another unusual ocean phenomenon, a giant floating patch of plastic. The currents of the swirling Pacific gyre northeast of Hawaii push some 4 million tons of plastic into a soupy mass nearly twice the size of Texas. It's killing marine life and adding to the ocean's toxic burden. So scientists with Project Kaisei want to scoop up the plastic and put it to good use. 
Mary Crowley and Doug Woodring started the project. Mary, Doug, welcome to Living on Earth. It's a pleasure to be on the program. Great to talk to you today. Well, first of all, Kaisei, what's that mean? Kaisei means ocean planet in Japanese. And that's also the name of the vessel you'll be sailing on? Yes. The Kaisei is a 151-foot brigantine, and we'll be sailing with a group of six marine scientists, a group of about five that are there concentrating on capture techniques and what would be the most energy-efficient ways of capturing the marine debris and plastics in the ocean. And Doug, you'll be on a separate ship, right? Yes, that's correct. I'll be on the research vessel that's owned by Scripps Institution of Oceanography called the New Horizons. We leave from San Diego, and the Kaisei leaves from San Francisco. So we'll both be in different parts of the gyre, and a good part of that is we're getting a lot of different data points and uh, information from different areas that haven't been collected before. So what are the main questions you think we need to answer if we're going to find a way to clean this up? I think the main thing is going to be how to net it or catch it in in an efficient way because new technologies exist that allow us to remediate that plastic and actually turn it into a fuel. If we're able to do that, then there's a value to capturing that product and that can help subsidize a future cleanup effort. So the, the trick is really figuring out how much volume we might get and therefore deducting how much output we could get from a byproduct, which is a fuel, which could then subsidize our trip. Now, how do you make sure you're just scooping up the plastic? It can't be that simple. There's got to be all kinds of other flotsam, and I imagine even some marine life that's uh, latched on to the floating stuff, right? Yes, but this is the sort of thing we're going to test and find out so we do the best job of it. We've really been reaching out to people all around the world about capture techniques and about the idea of doing some passive systems where we would be able to put up netting and use sea anchors going down to a different level. And so we'd be able to use the surface current to bring us the debris. We should be able to fairly easily not involve fish or marine mammals, etc., because the debris doesn't move except for the current. So it's quite easy for us to get the debris and not get the ocean life. Now, Doug, you mentioned the possibility of converting the plastic into some sort of fuel, but plastics have all sorts of uh, toxic materials in them. How do you convert it to fuel without creating pollution in the process? Well, that's a great question. And uh, in fact, the problem, especially with marine life in the gyre and marine debris, is that it also is a bonding agent, if you will, for heavy metals, uh, persistent organic particles that are in the ocean bind themselves to this material. So not only do you have a plastic particle, but you have millions of small bits of the POPs which are toxic. And the problem here is when the marine life eats this plastic, it may die of inability to digest the material, but it's also these toxins that are getting into that animal or fish. And when the next animal or fish in the food chain eats that, it's going up into the whole ecosystem, including into potentially what we're eating. So some of the new technologies that can basically liquefy and refine plastic material back into either a diesel or a heavy fuel, they have an ability to detoxify that in the process. In fact, the way that this system works is if you have a kilo 
roughly, or a pound of plastic being put into the machine, you get about 80% of that back in liquid fuel form. About 20% is gas form, and that gas is actually going to be used to run the plant itself. So it's a very, very good new system, and there's a value to the waste wherever it's collected. That gives people incentive to go collect it. Now, the two of you will be out uh, among this flotsam for better part of a month, and it is way out there, right? It's about five days from anywhere. It's almost like there's nowhere, no matter how remote, you can get in the oceans where you don't find our trash. It's amazing. It's very disturbing, but that's a great deal of why I have such a passion to accomplish this cleanup. It's sort of like this has happened in my lifetime, and I have a 23-year-old daughter, and I have all sorts of young friends, and I think their children won't get to experience the same things I have unless we really take action now and create change in people's behavior. And we need to figure out effective ways of cleanup and help the ocean. And we need everyone to help us. Mary Crowley and Doug Woodring, co-founders of Project Kaisei. Thanks very much. Well, thank you for having us on. Thank you, Jeff. Coming up, tough choices about energy on the reservation. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. In the southeast corner of Montana, on the isolated northern Cheyenne Reservation, live some of the most determined and successful environmentalists you've never heard of. Over the past four decades, the Cheyenne fought powerful energy interests and the federal government to keep the tribe's vast coal deposits from being mined. They've adopted some of the country's strictest air and water quality standards, but they've had less success dealing with chronic unemployment and substance abuse. Now a new tribal president is pushing coal as a way out of poverty, as Daniel Crocker reports. Jay Littlewolf's mud-caked pickup careens up the rutted road to Badger Peak, the highest point on the northern Cheyenne Reservation. At the summit is one of the more visible signs of his people's long fight to preserve their environment. Little Wolf opens the door to one of the tribe's three air quality monitoring stations. To basically all three sites, monitor for Russell 2, NOX, NO, NO2. Inside the tiny trailer, air analyzers hum as they measure tiny amounts of the pollutants. Outside, Little Wolf points north, where 16 miles away, four smokestacks puff wisps of smoke into the bright blue sky. But with that plume from coal strip, no matter what time of the year, um, you can see it. Usually in the morning, you can see a brown haze in the sky there, and that's uh, nitrogen dioxide. Coal strip is Montana's largest coal plant. It cranks out over 2,000 megawatts of electricity. When the plant's owners wanted to expand in the 1970s, the Northern Cheyenne fought back. They became the first government to voluntarily adopt the strictest air quality standard, a Class I airshed the same as national parks. The tribe used its new leverage to force the coal plant's owners to install state-of-the-art pollution scrubbers and to pay for the tribe's air monitors. Back inside, Little Wolf turns on a computer to show me the data he's collecting. We still get low numbers, but we measure 
a report in parts per billion. So we're still being impacted because the class one has a very small increment. It doesn't take much to impact us. Over the years, the tribe has used its stringent air quality standards to stop proposed mines and power plants beyond the reservation, too. But now this reservation is an island. Five major strip mines surround it. There's a new power plant 60 miles west, hundreds of natural gas wells to the south, and two proposed plants to convert coal to diesel. Many people here say it's time for the northern Cheyenne to also join in the coal boom before it's too late. Okay, my name's uh, Leroy Spang. I was recently elected president of the North Cheyenne Tribe. Spang worked for three decades as a miner in Coal Strip before retiring three years ago. Coal is what he knows, and it's what he campaigned on. I run my platform, but it's more or less uh, coal. I guess there's a lot of people was backing me for that coal. That's how I got in. Two years ago, after decades of fierce opposition, tribal members finally said yes to developing their coal resources in a special referendum. There's an amazing amount of coal here, billions of tons under practically every inch of the reservation, part of a rich belt that stretches into Wyoming. Eugene Limpy, a former tribal vice president and Spang supporter, says there's enough to support generations of his people. And the revenue that will come from that coal it will address our needs for money for education, housing for all our people, and uh, a retirement fund when people reach uh, uh, elderly age. Limpy seems unconcerned that elsewhere in the country, some are turning away from coal because of its carbon emissions. It might seem way out far, but they're going to find a technique to turn that coal into some type of energy, maybe atomic fuel. Technology is always coming up with something to use the resources underneath. And Limpy says those resources could provide jobs on a reservation where the unemployment rate is about 70 percent and the median income only half the national average. Limpy has a good job working for the tribal government, but he says the poverty affects everyone. And that includes me. I have 17 people living in my home. I keep seven of my grandchildren there's no housing. We can't afford to buy a house. But both Limpy and Spang acknowledge the Cheyenne's own environmental laws could be a roadblock. It costs money for the companies to comply with the high standard of Clean Air Act that um, the tribe won in the U.S. Supreme Court. Would there be any consideration of, of lowering that air quality standard? The question clearly makes Spang uncomfortable. He holds his hand up to signal he doesn't want to answer. Yeah, we're driving down Lame Deer, Montana, Cheyenne Avenue. We even have a four-way stop downtown. What you see here is like uh, dirt world conditions. Philip Whiteman Jr. cruises the tribal capital's main drag. Not much more than a gas station, cafe, and some boarded-up storefronts. Whiteman is one of the most vocal opponents of coal development. There's a lot of people think that the industrial culture, the gas, the coal, all of that is going to bring in uh, money, jobs, then plus they even promise dollar store. He gestures out the window as we drive north out of Lame Deer, past horses grazing in rolling pastures. Look at this beauty of this land. It's priceless. 
substituted for a dollar store. That's what our people are faced with today. Whiteman's taking me to one of his people's most sacred sites, Medicine Deer Rock. It's where the famous chief Sitting Bull led Cheyenne and Sioux warriors in a Sundance before the Battle of Little Bighorn, where General George Custer was killed. It was a defeat that shocked America. But the victory was short-lived for the Cheyenne. They surrendered less than a year later. Oh, bless my soul with Mother Earth. Open the tobacco in the four sacred directions. Next down the wall, it's the wall here. Here I'm not made down the wall, it's the wall made down the wall. I don't know what I'm made down the wall. Here I'm going to go down there. My hand is too... Whiteman finishes his prayer and leads me around the rock. It's lined with huge pictograph panels, like a giant stone art gallery. One image depicts the vision Sitting Bull had before the battle of Custer's soldiers dying like insects. And look at the soldiers falling into the camp like locusts. they got grasshopper legs. Around the rock, people have tied bright prayer cloths to trees. Others have left offerings of food. Whiteman believes the fight against coal is just the latest battle for his people, who still refer to themselves as the Fighting Cheyenne. We believe that we're still fighting in many ways to preserve and protect our language, culture, and our identity, and submitting to the exploitation of our land. What little land that we have left would be devastating to our future generations. For those northern Cheyenne who oppose coal mining, it invariably comes back to wanting to protect the land their ancestors fought so hard for. Shortly after the tribe, in defeat, was forcibly moved to a fort in Nebraska, they broke out and in the dead of a frigid winter trekked hundreds of miles back here. There are a lot of people who did make a grave sacrifice. Ben Lone Bear, only 29 years old, is the tribe's treasurer. And I think the rationale behind not developing those resources is based on the respect for those things and that um, tearing up our land that was fought for and died for um, really, really, really hits home with some people. But Lone Bear also knows the hardship of living in a place where there's practically no economy. From the treasurer's standpoint, I believe about 85, maybe 90 percent of the money that comes into the tribe comes in the form of assistance from the federal government. To become more self-sufficient, Lone Bear doesn't rule out coal, but he believes the tribe should explore renewables first. The Department of Energy says there is enormous wind potential on the reservation, and that's the route local environmentalists, like Alexis Bonagovsky with the National Wildlife Federation, are urging the tribe to take. It's a false choice that they're being presented with. And to be backed up against the wall and say, you have to develop your minerals or else you're going to remain in poverty, is, it's a horrible position to be in. But there may be something even more fundamental at stake for many northern Cheyenne than whether they mine their coal or leave it in the ground or even build wind turbines. For people like Ben Lone Bear, the key is cultural survival, not economic prosperity. If the tribe loses its language and ceremonies, he says with sadness, then they become just regular Americans like everyone else. For Living on Earth, I'm Daniel Crocker in Lame Deer, Montana. In the Southwest, the Navajo have long allowed mining on their reservation. Now they're looking for alternatives. 
The Navajo Nation Council is the first tribal government to approve green jobs legislation. It will support renewable energy and energy efficiency and sustainable manufacturing and agriculture based on the tribe's traditional methods. Wahela Johns helped make that happen. She's co-director of the nonprofit group Black Mesa Water Coalition, which waged a long campaign for green jobs. We're very excited about the Navajo Nation passing this legislation. We have people that are ready to be trained in weatherization programs, putting solar panels on rooftops, and given our communities being ranchers and farmers, we are looking to support families who are planning textile mill because we have a lot of people who raise sheep. We can use that wool to make carpets and sustainable fashion, people who are raising organic meats and foods to do gourmet foods. So... This Green Jobs plan can help our people and individual families who do this work already but don't have a marketing mechanism. A a lot of those you're describing, they don't sound like newfangled ways of doing things, but rather investing more in, in some really old ways of doing things that maybe have fallen by the wayside. Yeah, I mean, this green initiative, it's really supporting, you know, these ancient ways of of living as Native people. And it's all based on our community's needs. And so I think each community, it's up to them to decide what kind of development they want, which is different than how economic development has been in the past, where what happens in our backyard is dealt with the governments and the um, corporations. With this initiative, it's really trying to plant the seed so we are self-sufficient and we are trying to stabilize our economies. Tell me a bit about the economic picture uh, for the Navajo Nation. Uh, I read somewhere that the unemployment rate hovers around 50 percent. Yep, about 54 percent. Most Native nations, it goes as high as 90 percent. I mean, this is um, we've been in the Great Depression for a very long time. (laughs) And so that's what we have to work with. And that's something that, you know, for me being of a younger generation and going to school and then coming back to my community, there's little job opportunities at home. There's a whole missing generation. Um, Once you hit 18 to about 45 years old, I mean, that that generation is um, outside the reservation because they have to work. You know, it's frustrating to see, like, my uncles and my cousin brothers, they are iron workers or they're construction workers, and they have to drive to Los Angeles, Las Vegas for employment. And that's like a anywhere from a 6 to 12-hour drive for them, and they come back every weekend to see their families. So I hope with this initiative that we can bring our young people back to work closer to home. You grew up in the coal mining area there. Black Mesa has long been an area with a lot of coal mining. How did that affect your outlook on this? You know, it's been a challenge because that's the largest coal strip mine up there that Peabody Coal Company has been operating for over 30 years. And the fact that, you know, we've supplied the Southwest with their electrical needs for over 30 years, and yet nothing has really come back to our communities. We still have no running water. We don't have electricity. So being a younger person and understanding the history of the deals that happen between the government and corporation, I feel like it's my responsibility to really try to plant a seed that is going to be good for our communities and bring healing again. Do you foresee a day when uh, the Navajo Nation, and in particular Black Mesa, uh, might um, be thought of as, uh, oh yeah, that's the place where they make green energy? 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's my goal. And using those lands that have been reclaimed after mining for something, maybe a sustainability school or, you know, potential solar farm. You know, there's there's so many opportunities that we can make of that land that has been used for mining. But it's not easy because Peabody Coal Company was given another permit December of 2008 to mine more coal, you know, that still hurts me um, because Black Mesa, to me, is my mother, and I need my mother to be healthy and so future generations can have a good life there. Now, how old are you? I am 33. And I'm guessing that uh, the chief organizers of this movement were your age and, and younger, yeah? Yeah. A lot of young folks was supporting this legislation and moving this legislation. What does that tell us about uh, what's going on with uh, with the Navajo Nation, that we have a younger generation expressing a desire to take a markedly different direction with uh, your energy future? I mean, there was a lot of young people involved, but there was also a lot of older folks. You know, when we go to our communities, it is mostly elders that are in our communities. And to be able to interact with them and talk about, you know, this initiative, they really understand it. They They know you know, what green living is about. (laughs) So it's not so much telling them, like, this is the way you need to do it. It's really having that respect and collaborate. Hmm. You know, my identity as being a Diné woman and given the responsibility as I have to caretaking of land, to caretaking of family, to caretaking of my clan that I belong to. And these are the same responsibilities that a lot of Navajo young people have. And that's part of our way of life. And I feel like if we can do it on Navajo Nation, I, I feel like anybody can do it anywhere. Wahila Johns is co-director for the Black Mesa Water Coalition. Thanks very much. Thank you. Time now for your thoughts. A correction from listener John Woolley, who hears us in Palo Alto on San Francisco station KQED. Our story about the 1872 Hard Rock Mining Law mentioned Brigham Young's arrest for polygamy. We goofed when we said that he had 103 wives. He probably had no more than 55. Our feature on dandelions had a lot of listeners praising the flower's power as health food. Podcast listener Sue Siphon writes, My parents and I are immigrants from Southeast Asia, and eating wild plants, including dandelions, is a way of life. Is there a health risk to eating dandelion buds? We checked it out. The USDA says dandelions are indeed vitamin and mineral rich, and it's okay to eat the buds. Just look out for pesticides. Finally, feedback from New Hampshire Public Radio listener Derek Teer to our interview with poet Campbell McGrath. McGrath imagined the experiences of George Shannon, who strayed from Lewis and Clark's expedition and came across... Great herds of the buffalo all around me. Buffalo, 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 buffalo. Mr. Teer wrote... Love your show, which we listen to in New Hampshire, but last night's buffalo feature can cause some insomnia in our house. The piece on Shannon was extremely interesting, but you should never have let that self-styled poet 
just keep repeating the same three-syllable word ad infinitum. That was sheer lunacy. Lunacy, 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 lunacy. <laughs> okay. Lunacy, polygamy, or edible greenery, whatever your thoughts, we'd like to hear them. You can reach us at comments at loe.org. Once again, comments at loe.org. Or call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Just ahead, the hunt for giant pythons in Florida's Everglades. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Green is, of course, the color of the conservation movement. It's also the color of Islam. Islamic scholars gathered in Istanbul recently to blend those two shades of green with a seven-year action plan on global warming. We believe that all of us, all of us, not just Muslims, Muslim, Christian, Jews, everybody lives on this earth. We are in the same boat. So we have to care about this earth, all of us. That's Mahmoud Akif, whose nonprofit Earthmates Dialogue Center organized the action plan. Goals include climate change education, green cities, and the Grand Mufti of Egypt even pledged to make his fatwa issuing office in Cairo carbon neutral. Mahmoud Akif says the inspiration comes from Islam's sacred texts, the Quran, and the Hadith, the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. Of course, the Quran has a lot of verses with regard to the environment, with regard to walking on the earth to look what God has created for the human being. And he, this human being should save and protect and enjoy these uh, creations. And at the same time, uh, Prophet Muhammad has also many hadiths uh, or saying uh, about the environment. There is a hadith, has a Uhud, Jabal Yuhubuna wa Nuhibu, means uh, this is the mountain of Uhud. It's near to Mecca, and uh, this mountain loves us, and we love love it. So he moved the level of uh, caring about the mountain as a part of the environment from just to enjoy the the beautifulness of the mountain to love. And it's a symbol for the other parts of the environment. We should love the environment. And when we love the environment, of course, we will take care of it, we will protect it, and we will save it. And then there's there's another one that says essentially you should you should treat a do I understand this correctly a a palm tree as if it is your aunt is that right Yes yes akrimu akrimu ammatikum an-nakhla akrimu means respect mm-hmm. you should respect your aunt of course of course so he asks the muslims to respect and admire the palm tree your aunt the palm tree <laughs> you know so if you if you if you look at it as your aunt you have feeling this is very important. You should have respect and admire the environment. Yeah. This is what Islam and uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, ask us to do. Now, you convened this uh, conference in Istanbul to uh, talk about the issue and uh, come up with a plan of action. Tell me a couple of uh, specific action items here. I read, I think, one where there's a recommendation for essentially a, a green uh, seal of approval, a, a label that would be placed on products. Yes. 
what we call the Islamic label for products which is produced uh, through an environmental friendly uh, ways. And we call this Taiba. Taiba means like halal, uh, like label putting on the food. Right, that it was processed in a proper way. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And who would give this uh, seal of approval? Who would decide? We started by establishing an organization called Mecca. Mecca is a Muslim association for climate change action. Uh-huh. And it, this, this organization will be responsible for implementing the plan. And, and that acronym sounds a lot like uh, Mecca, the, the holy site. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Of course, we, we try to, to do it yani, very similar. That means this organization coming from an Islamic principle, you know, an Islamic uh, values. Any plans for a, a green hajj to reduce the carbon footprint of one's uh, trip to Mecca? Yes, we already discussed it with some people in, in, in the Saudi authorities. And we, we are going to start with what we call green umrah, which is a little bit smaller than the hajj. Because in the hajj, there are more than three, four million people attending the same place at the same time. Mm-hmm. So this is what we are working on it now. And not only when they go to the uh, holy places, but also when they go back to their countries, they will start teaching the other people. Yeah, that, that's a real moment of opportunity, isn't it? Because when people undertake the pilgrimage, they're about, you know, renewing their faith. And this is, a, I guess, what we call a, a teachable moment, right? Yeah. And the potential is a huge, huh? more than 1.3 billion of people around the world believing in these values and this principle. And if they can implement these actions, I think it will help the whole earth, you know. Because the climate change, it will affect all of us. Mm-hmm. So we should take care of this challenge. There is a hadith also, if, if you feel the, the day of judgment is coming and you have a seedling in your hand, you should plant it. Even if you think the day of judgment is coming, you should still plant a seedling. Yeah. So even though things uh, might look hopeless, still do something to make it better. Uh-huh. Yes. If, if, you, if you feel it will not help, but you should do it. And we believe that all of us, we have to save this earth. Mr. Mahmoud Akif is founder and director of the nonprofit organization Earthmates Dialogue Center. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Coming up, saying farewell to the green, green grass of home. But first, this cool fix for a hot planet from Annie Glosser. Hydrogen fuel may have found a lucky wishbone. The key is to pluck a chicken. Chemical engineers at the University of Delaware say toasted chicken feathers can outperform other hydrogen storage materials, and they do it at a fraction of the cost. Hydrogen, a potential green alternative to gasoline, is a finicky element, making it difficult to store and transport. As a liquid, it has to be kept at very low temperatures. As a pressurized gas, it takes up 30 times as much space as regular gasoline. Using chicken feathers as a storage material allows hydrogen to be kept in a much smaller space. That's because the feathers are made up of the protein keratin, which forms hollow, strong tubes. When heated, the keratin tubes cross-link and strengthen, and at the same time become more porous. 
This dramatically increases its surface area, so it can absorb as much or more hydrogen than expensive carbon nanotubes or metal hydrides, two popular materials for storage. The researchers estimate that a fuel tank made of chicken feathers would only carry a price tag of about $200, while a tank made of nanotubes or hydrides could be in the millions. Our feathered friends may help ease us off fossil fuels, but the science still needs some time to roost. That's this week's Cool Fix for Hot Planet. I'm Annie Glosser. And if you have a cool fix for a hot planet, we'd like to know it. If we use your idea on the air, we'll send you a shiny, electric blue, living-on-earth tire gauge. Keep your tires properly inflated, and you could save hundreds of dollars a year in fuel. Email coolfix, that's one word, coolfix, at loe.org. Once again, coolfix at loe.org. And now for something completely different. Pythons, Burmese pythons, in the Everglades. This snake in the river of grass does not belong in South Florida, but it's become a well-established invasive species. Now state and federal wildlife officials are scaling up a python eradication program. They're calling on volunteers to hunt down the snakes. We called up one of those volunteers, Greg Graziani of Venus, Florida, who makes his living as a reptile breeder. Mr. Graziani says even though Burmese pythons can get 20 feet long, they can be very hard to find. Well, right now, as warm as it is, they may spend a lot of time in the thick brush during the day uh, hiding because they've got enough heat. And that's why we think the wintertime is going to be a better time for us. Now, a lot of what we do um, throughout the rest of this summer will, will be a lot of nighttime hunts. And mainly we stick to the roads and levees because the snakes will be on the move crossing those and you'll be able to see the animals. Unlike alligators, snakes' eyes are very small. And it's not like we can go out there and spotlight them and, and light the eyes up like people do with alligators with the reflection of the eyes. So snakes are going to be much more difficult to find. But you have managed to find at least one so far, right? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, we took about four or five airboats out just uh, kind of to show the press the terrain that we were dealing with. Uh, myself and Sean Hefleck, uh, one of the other hunters, was uh, walking down a boardwalk, and Sean was looking off to the right side of the boardwalk while I was watching the left side, which is when I spotted the tail of a Burmese python going under the boardwalk. So uh, I immediately just uh, dropped down on the snake and grabbed the snake by the tail before it could get under the, the boardwalk, and uh, Sean Hefleck jumped into the, the marsh right there, and as I pulled the snake out, we worked our way up until he was able to get the head under control and uh, ended up pulling out a, a nine-foot, eight-inch female Burmese python. Holy cow. So let me get this straight. The hunting technique is you spend a lot of time trying to find a snake, and then when you find it, you basically just jump in the swamp and wrestle the thing down. Depending on the size, I mean, a lot of times we just simply reach down and pick them up. Um, they're a very slow-moving snake. Uh, they're at this point. Yeah, but it's, time, it's almost ten feet long. Yeah, that's and that's you know about an average size Burmese python. I know it seems really spectacular, but when you've been doing this for over thirty years, it's just another snake. So tell me about your experience with snakes. How, how did you learn so much about snakes, and what motivates you? Uh, you know, I started when I was seven years old. I grew up in the city of Pembroke Pines down in Broward County, Florida, which is very close to where this problem is occurring. And uh, I, I was uh, taking care of a neighbor's house, bringing the mail in, feeding the cat, that type of stuff. And it was uh, dusk one night. I went over and thought there was a big nightcrawler on the front porch. I really couldn't see. I reached down and grabbed it and it bit me. <laughs> 
And from that point on, it, it just intrigued me. I started getting into corn snakes as a, as a youngster. Uh, and anything that I could catch in the late 80s, I realized that people were breeding these things. And uh, it, it's become a, a large market in the pet trade. So you know the pet business pretty well. What's the culpability there for these uh, pythons ending up in the Everglades in the first place? Well, there's a lot of theories. Unfortunately, some of the politicians have been really pounding it into people that, uh, you know, irresponsible pet owners have let these animals loose. Uh, And they really make it sound like people are driving down in droves to make sure their snakes can survive in the Everglades. Uh And uh, we just don't believe that to be true. There has not been a a single documented case where they've actually caught anybody releasing snakes. And we believe the devastation of Hurricane Andrew is what released the population that we're now having a problem with. And it seems that uh, there has been a study done, a DNA study, that shows these animals are very closely related, which would point to a single incident that put them out there at one time. So this might very well be uh, yet another legacy of, of Hurricane Andrew. Yes. Wow. Yes. And is it fun hunting snakes in the Everglades? I think it's extremely exciting. I mean, uh, again, I wish they weren't there, but uh, very few people can go uh, python hunting in the United States because they're just not here. Can this work? Uh, Can you possibly, you know, get rid of the pythons once they've become so well-established in a place as as wild and uh, tough to penetrate as the Everglades? You know, there's a lot of theories on that. And what we want to find out, because it's really not known at this point, is are these animals a serious threat to the ecosystem in the Everglades? Do we need to work on a total eradication? Do we simply need to work on controlling the population of these animals? Or are they not a problem at all? By doing the gut content and finding out which animals they're eating and trying to do surveys on, on other uh, animal populations out there, we're going to hopefully find out, you know, what we need to do and uh, if, you know, our efforts are, are actually uh, contributing to restoring the Everglades. So you say you, you're, you're checking the gut content of the snakes. Obviously, when you catch them, you kill them, right? Yeah, that is not something as hunters and as python breeders that we particularly want to do, but it is part of the criteria for this program. Uh, unfortunately, that is the downside as uh, you know, a snake lover myself. W- would I rather somebody else you know, handle the euthanization process? Definitely, but that's just something we have to do. Greg Graziani, a reptile breeder turned python hunter. Thanks very much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. They say the grass is always greener on the other side. But commentator Pat Priest of Athens, Georgia, prefers what's on her side of the fence. My name was drawn at a raffle recently, and I learned I'd won a free month of tanning. As a teenager, I would have been thrilled, but now in my 50s, I know better. I felt awkward turning it down, but then other people passed on it too. We've learned to just say no to a cigarette, veal, and tanning. But meanwhile, day after day, I watched a neighbor lay out about a half acre of new sod. Sod. It looks pretty if you weed out thoughts of the water necessary to sustain it. 
Turf guzzles so much water that the city of Cary, North Carolina, is among a growing number of places offering buyback programs to homeowners who will rip it out. A half acre needs tens of thousands of gallons of water yearly. But the problems are more deeply rooted than simply conserving water. Perfect grass really is much like the perfect tan, which may look like a sign of robust health, but more often is evidence of damaging practices. The green, green grass of home is usually the result of pesticides and herbicides that kill creatures in nearby streams when stormwater flushes out the toxins. Fertilizers also damage aquatic environments, and the mining of phosphate rock for fertilizer has poisoned the water in places as far-flung as Idaho and Florida. And what would ancient cultures think, and those in the future for that matter, to see us walking around in circles mowing grass? The Environmental Protection Agency estimates that lawnmowers use 800 million gallons of gas each year, and the emissions cause 5% of the air pollution in the U.S. So, this year I decided to cover over my grass. A friend helped me lay down recycled paper lawn bags. We covered the paper with mulch made from invasive species such as privet and Russian olive. These layers will improve our hard clay soil. When it's cooler, I'll put in lots of native plants. They're like a big welcome sign for pollinators and other species whose habitat is disappearing. To undo my lawn yard by yard was as labor-intensive initially as my neighbor's sod laying. But I don't need to mow or use chemicals now that I'm finished. My yard doesn't look like a golf course, but it's a safe haven for my family, dogs, and wildlife. By undoing my lawn, I'm overturning convention and commonly held aesthetics to stave off the unraveling of the irreplaceable web of life on Earth. Writer Pat Priest tends her brown lawn in Athens, Georgia. the next Living on Earth. The United Kingdom wants more renewable energy, including tidal power. But a plan for a huge wall in a river mouth is making waves. Put a barrage across like that, the barrage effectiveness will not be 100 years. It probably will only be 10 years. It will just be mind-boggling. It will just silt the whole place up and turn the whole place into a vast bog. Harnessing the River Severn, next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Bolinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shriskanjaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Annie Glosser and Lisa Song. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Our executive producer is Steve Kerwood. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, 
supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at GatesFoundation.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PRI Public Radio International.